Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavigan. And this is special guest, Andrew Carter. And this week, we're going to be taking a look at Kiss Asylum. Before we do that, we like to play a song or two uh, that we've been involved with musically. So, John, right off the bat, what would you like to play? Uh, I'm going to go with The Ballad of Johnny Blowtorch. I'll be sending you some other stuff from other bands that I was in. I just realized I have a whole other catalog that I could give you, but I just need to get around doing it. So let's do Ballad of Johnny Blowtorch. It's now officially, there is a spotify playlist that has it you know on breaking indie music that now has it on there somewhere in the top somewhere in the 50s Since I just did a session yesterday with a, a local band here in Los Angeles uh, called The Claws uh, that also features a guitar player, a vocalist, uh, Gary Martin, who is from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who also used to play in bands uh, like the Science Fiction Idols and the Cosmosonics. Uh, 
Um, right. Granted, I'm, I won't be on this. I'm not in this recording for the song I'm going to, going to mention, but for their next album that will be coming out that early, later this year, um, I will be on. Uh, but nonetheless, um, let's play the track uh, Little Glimmer from The Claws, and, and we can pull this you know, online. It, it's, it's readily available. Uh, it's a great band. It's a very sort of like bluesy glam rock, you know, kind of thing that we're all into. And uh, it's a great band, and it's a great opportunity to work with these guys. And, uh, you know, let, let's, let's go. It's a great track. I think, I think you'll, you'll dig it. Loyalty 
when I heard the production on the Claws No Connection record, um, I had seen the band play live, and I said, listen, if you guys ever need a guitar player, let me know. Uh, I'd love to be part of that. And Gary invited me down straight away, and uh, thank you, Gary, for making me part of your band. It, it's awesome. Thank you. Cool. And then uh, I'm going to play Up, Up, and Away with 4EJ, new Dame Fortune track featuring Kevin Valentine on drums. And I just finished cutting together a video for it. So if you go to the Facebook Dame Fortune page, you can check that out as well. Oh, it's good, by the way. I saw it. I like this. Oh, thank you. Thank you, man. Glad you like it. Oh, wow. 
So, Kiss comes fresh off the heels of the successful comeback arena tour, Animalize. They spend June and July in the, a couple different studios, Electric Lady Studios and Right Track Studios in New York City. Uh, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley, although probably mostly Paul Stanley, at the production helm this time for Kiss Asylum. And... Um, Anything you guys want to mention about the album in, in general off the bat, or should we dive in track by track first? Yeah, overall, I just want to say that I think this is the first time where there's not been an outside producer for the album. Uh, it was Gene and Paul, or Paul and Gene, however you want to look at that, uh, in the production uh, seat. Um, also, too, let's look at you know the band as a whole. I mean, granted, with Analyze, there were some changes with Mark St. John playing guitar, Bruce Kulick playing guitar. Um, you know, it, this seems to me like a great starting point for, the, for them to be as a band cohesively, you know, with this lineup. I think that really shines through in this record and we'll probably get into that, that discussion through the tracks themselves. But I think it, it's, it stands as a whole as, a, you know, a really well-produced record. Uh, I'm sure there's some dated parts to it in terms of the production, but overall it, it sounds like a band, which is something that they might've not had consistently in the last few records that they put out. So I'm sure we're getting into that more of it. To me, as record as a whole, it sounds like a band playing and rehearsing and writing songs together. And that's really what an album should be when you, when you, you buy it and take it and replay it. That's interesting. This is the first album that I consider the Kiss Machine album, where they've uh, distilled exactly what they're good at and they make songs that are exactly what is expected of them to make. You know what I mean? It's almost a carbon copy. You know what I mean? It seems like it's, and I see what you're saying. Like, yeah, it's like the first time that there's sort of a band that knows exactly what they're supposed to do. Not necessarily cliched or generic, but it's like, they know that when Paul sings like this, people like it. They know when the song has a big chorus like this, people like it, you know? And there's definitely some outside influences on this album, which I'll talk about later. But um, this is this is the beginning of what I started to, refer to as the the you know the kiss machine you put the parts in and you get the song you know and this is what you're going to get exactly what you want yeah i think overall this album is kind of a reaction to animalize in some ways and some other forces that were work in in the industry um it is not as heavy or edgy as animalize was um, and I, I think there are reasons for that, that that we'll get into. But, you know, if there's a criticism of Animalize, it's that it's it's not really a fun album. It's an intense album, you know, and it's but 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 I think on some of these songs, they, they kind of harken back to some of the songwriting style that they were using, you know, as far back as rock and roll over. Um, they feel like a little bit more laid back, like they're enjoying themselves a little bit more. Um, and it's a little bit more commercial. You know, Paul has said at the time that um, at the helm of it, he felt pressure from the record company uh, to be producing what he referred to as not hard rock and roll, but just rock and something that, you know, could fit comfortably on the radio or on MTV and not ruffle too many feathers. Um, and then the other major factor that was going on right now was the rise of the PMRC. Um, and I think that a lot of bands took a step back at this point and engaged in a little bit of what was essentially self-censorship and, you know, took some of the rough edges off some of the lyrics that they were doing and some of the subject matter. Um, this album came out 
September 16th. The congressional hearings were September 19th. Um, so they would have definitely been aware of uh, which way the wind was blowing. And I think this album overall reflects that. Yeah, it's definitely a less intense record than Animalize. I mean, you know, Animalize being the most intense record in the Kiss catalog, but I've always kind of viewed Asylum and Animalize as like two halves of like, I've always viewed them as two records that really go well together because I, I think they 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 are the mid-era, mid-80s era of Kiss. You know, it's after Vinny, it's after Vinny and before Crazy Nights. And so I think while they're, while they're different records, I do think that they cohere together very well. And while, you know, Animalize is the more intense one, this is the one that was more uh, like bigger open choruses and more fun. You're right. I think, you know, mm -hmm. there was- uh, Yeah, it's definitely the sister album. I would agree with that for sure. And so, so for that, and, you know, I, I mean, Animalize is for me the dark horse of the Kiss catalog. And while I don't like, you know, th this, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't rank this album as highly as I do Animalize. It still has a lot of, you know, it has several songs that I really, really like and a lot of just good memories from when the album came out and just from that mm -hmm. era. And so. Right, yeah, well that's, yeah. This is my golden age of Kiss. Yeah. This is when I was, you know, seeing the shows and buying the albums and that kind of stuff, so yeah. And plus I didn't even pay for my copy of the album. Um, I think um, I think Anthony Fertivo brought his cop his brand new copy over to my house and we played it and then he left it there and I conveniently forgot to give it back to him. <laughs> so thanks Anthony, thanks Tony. <laughs> so the album kicks off with a drum solo, which is a little unusual for a Kiss album. Um, Eric Carr doing some uh, very fast and tasty uh, runs on the drums and goes into King of the Mountain. Yeah. Um, it's a good solid opener. I mean, they, they, you know, they very clearly had liked how out of the cold had worked for them on Animalize. And I think this was, um, while it's not quite as fast, you know, they went for this big kind of much heavier, more powerful opener than what was, you know, general, you know, um, I thought it, I thought it worked. And also the first Bruce Kulik co-write in the KISS catalog. Yeah. I'm looking at it not right now. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Along with Desmond C. Child. The, yeah, and this sort of is their, they start out with these uh, songs of affirmation or welcome back to the Kiss Army songs um, like Creatures of the Night. And I guess Exciter is technically not like that, although you could maybe say it was, but the opening track of, of um, Animalize is, you know, like another sort of powerful self-affirmating and then King of the Mountain, you know what I mean? So it's sort of they're keeping with that theme or whatever. And I think also in terms of like trying to reach back into the early eras or or reaching back into the earlier eras, another thing that was that that was notable that, that was where they made this record, which was Electric Lady Studios, which I dug into this. They did the Wicked Lester demos there. They did Dress to Kill there. Paul and Peter did their solo records there. They they, they tracked the Alive parts uh, or the studio parts of Alive and Electric Lady. And they also did Destroyer and Dynasty there. So this was just by even doing it, making this record at Electric Lady Studios, which was made for Jimi Hendrix in the first place, um, that's a nice big nod back. That's something they can talk about in interviews. And then also on the cover art, they resurrected the color scheme of, you know, purple for Paul, 
red for Gene, so on and so forth, and just had you know like the, the overlays, the Warhol-esque overlays of the various of everyone's lips in the old in the classic power colors for the band members. So I think it was um, all of this was an attempt to go back to the more positive party '70s Kiss. It was '80s affirmational Kiss at this point. Yeah, funny thing about that cover, I always thought it was interesting that they essentially cut off part of Eric Carr's face at the bottom. <laughs> and you wonder if that's Paul's reaction to the fact that on Creatures, it's the opposite. We get to see the whole top of his head and then Paul's stuck down in the corner, like, you know, <laughs> somewhat cut away. Well, you know what? It's better than the, the tour program because on the tour program, that's the front, right? You've got Gene, Paul and Gene, and then you go to the other side. Hey, there's the other guys in the band, the out-of-focus guys, yeah. Okay, so so for for, for, for for everybody out in Radio Land here, yeah, like basically like they've cut the cover in half and you can only see Paul and Gene on the front cover. And then you turn over to the back cover and there's Bruce and Eric. Yeah. <laughs> but getting back to the song, King of the Mountain, I think, you know, obviously it's based on a child's game in which, you know, it's, it, you're, you know, trying to get to the top of the hill of the mountain or whatever through physical force. And I think this is a song that's, you know, it's one dimensional in some ways, but it's definitely a celebration of the fact that they have essentially rebuilt their career at this point into where they're an arena level band and they're selling multi-platinum and they must feel like the kings of the mountain once again. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, there's some clever wordplay. Um, I'm going to rain, I'm going to shine, where rain is spelled R-E-I-G-N. Um you know, I'm going to beat the ground kind of reminds me of that joke about how do you fly while you jump and you miss the ground. Um, but, <laughs> you know, um, all the king's horses, all the king's men were getting crazy again and again. Yeah, that was um, a great, that's a great line. You know, the first time Paul's kind of done a, a reference to children's nursery rhymes, but it won't be the last because he'll go back to this again on Crazy Nights with When Your Walls Come Down. Um, the reference to getting crazy, though, could be seen as kind of a reference to the album title because Asylum itself obviously could be an asylum for the insane or it could be a refuge. And I think that the album title works both ways. Kiss is a refuge for their fans, and yet uh, the level of success that they have now reattained is a refuge for the band members themselves. Yes, and if you ask Gene, it's an asylum, and if you ask Paul, it's a refuge. That's probably how they split the answers in the press. Yes. Um, musically, the solo gets set up really interesting with a little interplay between Bruce and Eric before they dive in, um, where they're kind of mimicking mm -hmm. each other. Um, that's something unusual for a Kiss song to do. But cleverly arranged. I mean, again, you know, let's get into the, you know, the, the structure of the band at this point. I mean, Bruce essentially was a guest player on Animalized, but became a full member of the band on the Animalized tour. Here's his first real, you know, record with the band as, as a member of the band. You know, and previously, you know, Bruce had done a ton of work with bands like, you know, Billy Squire, you know, two albums with Blackjack, also Meatloaf. Um, and countless other, you know, situations where he was, you know, the guitar player in those bands. But, you know, do they have his stamp in terms of a guitar player? Maybe not. In this case, it's a great opening track. And apparently um, Bruce had come in with, you know, the verse part, which is, you know, your typical, like, you know, Stairway to Heaven or Scorpions, you know, No One Like You kind of chord structure with a few, you know, modifications. But to think that, you know, here's the guy's real first album with the band and he gets a co-write on the opening track. That's a huge compliment. Um, but also, too, like in terms of the, the arrangement with the, you know, the solo and the setup, I mean, that, you can tell that, again, back to my original point, 
they sound like a band, they sound like they've been rehearsing and they sound like they're working together as a solid unit. And I think that comes across straight away with you know the opening track of this of this album. Yeah. Speaking musically, it is the most definitive baseline on the entire album. I mean, it's definitely very, very cool. Um, he's playing some rhythm parts and then doing some slides in there. I mean, it's it's a very it's probably the I would argue the best play, bass playing he's done in a couple of albums. Um, and I, I'm <laughs> I hope it's Gene. I didn't do any research to see. Well, how no. Many- Good, good point, John. Not to you know dispute and you know throw away my point about them sounding like a band, but there there are only a few songs in this record where somebody else is playing bass. Uh, right. This, yeah. This and was, it's not this, was, this one. Yeah, it's I'm not this one. Sure is Gene. Yeah. So um, because the bass part is actually pretty interesting, you know. It kind of reminds yeah it reminds me of almost like the the bass line in Detroit City in a way where it's like a counterpoint right. bass line. You know. Mm-hmm. It's great. Playing, he's playing to the drums and the guitar like a bass player should, which is something that gets lost a lot of times, um, you know, mm-hmm. especially in this sort of 80s metal kind of stuff or whatever. No, actually, that, this leads this leads to like this actually leads to a question. Do you think that um, perhaps the fact that the bass line was that un- or, or that there was there were unusual things going on in this song from a Kiss standpoint? Do you think that this song was only played once on the opening night of the tour and was dropped after that? Do you think that might have been have something to do with that this this could have been like a tricky tune for Gene to deal with live? I could I could honestly believe that because I mean there's there were moments where I'm I, I mean I still listened to the song a couple of times and I was like what is he doing there? You know what I mean? Like it sounds like he's just doing this. You know what I mean? But then there's there's other parts that he's throwing in there, and you know, then I was gonna look it up on tabs.com, and I didn't do that. You know what I mean? Or try and see. You know what I mean? To actually look at it to see if I could figure it out because it it. it so yeah, I could totally buy that. I would absolutely totally buy that. It's kind of a uh, hard song to play. I actually have some different information. I I have oh. that they played the song three times on the tour. That oh. they played it in November, uh, okay. December, and then again in April. So, um, and in fact, I know a guy that was at one of the shows in which they played it. It's curious why they didn't play it more. Yeah, no, I don't think it was the opening to the set. It was like maybe third or fourth in, in the set okay. itself. Okay. Yeah, yeah, the opening. Um, yeah, they had it really early in the set. Um, I, I one of the Kiss books that, like, it was for it was it was early. Yeah, but if you also compare it to, you know, like I mentioned Detroit Rock City, I mean, they've opened countless shows, particularly the Detroit Tour with, you know, Detroit Rock City, and that's a complicated song to present to an audience. And Gene had no problem doing that back then. So I, I, I wonder, you know, or I sort of maybe even question, you know, whether or not, you know, was it the, the execution of the song or was it really going over with the audience? You know, you know they, they've typically done a lot of things where they said, we got a new record here, we're gonna try some new songs on the, on the tour and a few songs, you know, a few shows into the tour, they say, yeah, you know, gone with it. And, and, you know, they try it out and then they quickly, you know, move away from it. You rehearse enough, you can play anything. I mean, that's, that's my argument as to like, a lot of times, like, why did I never become a professional musician? Because I didn't have the guts to quit everything and sit around and just play my instrument (laughs) all the time. You know what I mean? To like, not get a job to, you know, and I sometimes think, you know, so I think honestly, if you rehearse enough, you can pretty much play anything. Like, why is yeah, yeah. Prince, Prince used to make his band like he wanted his band to be moving around and really like gesticulating when they were playing things. And I think there was a there was a song on Sign of the Times, one of the really tough ones, where the band was like in rehearsal and they're, and they're playing it and they're getting the parts right, but they're not moving around. And he's like, and and Prince says to the band like, why 
why aren't you moving around? And they're like, well, this is really hard to play. And they said, okay, well, we're just going to play this over and over and over again until you get it right. And then so finally, like a hundred tries later, the band is like jumping around and then, yeah. you know. So. The, the, those freaking Jackson 5 songs, I want you back with that crazy walking bass line and that, you know, uh, that's that, uh, that riff in there, the do-do-do-do-do, you know what I mean? That, that's hard to play just sitting down on your couch, you know what I mean? <laughs> Let alone being able to move back and forth, you know, while you're doing it and, you know, turn and sing and hit those notes. So, again, rehearsal, you can do anything. I, I agree, but you can also re rehearse a song up and down or, you know, you know, to life or death. And, you know, when you're in front of an audience, if, if the audience is looking at you, then they're paying attention. If they're looking somewhere else, whether it be their, you know, their... Yeah, good point. Yeah, it may not have grabbed the yeah, audience. Yeah, that's all. That's all. Yeah. It's weird. I think it's, I don't know, I'm, I'm surprised that it, it must not have gone over well, but I'm surprised that it didn't. And I feel like it deserved a slightly better shot. Yeah, well, they, I mean, it's interesting if you look at it, though, because they, they didn't play it like the first night or the first couple nights. They played it once and then like a month later and then several months after that. So they tried to relaunch it. They gave it several chances and I guess it didn't, you know, didn't catch fire or whatever. But oh, well, but still made, still makes for a good album opener regardless. For sure. Yeah, I mean, the song works. You know, it's arguably a little one-dimensional, but when that low E comes in on the chorus and stuff, it, you know, you, you, you're with yeah. it. Hey, one dimension's fine if it's the right one. Right. Yeah, again, it's that Kiss Machine. It's here's your affirmation, affirmative, you know, song that we write, and you will like it. And right. I like it. I'm not, you know what I mean? Like, there's nothing wrong with it. It pushes all the right buttons that it's supposed to push, and they know how to push those buttons, so. Yeah. So during, during this period, Gene Simmons was very distracted with producing other bands and trying to launch a movie career and all this stuff. And um, Paul was complaining that he would very often show up in the studio dead tired, not having slept the night before with some half-assed material that he may or may not have actually been involved in writing um, and that he wanted you know, as much credit and as many songs in the album as Paul did. And uh, he was not contributing 100% of his capabilities creatively. And, and that brings us to the next song. <laughs> uh, Any Way You Slice It, which, you know, is pretty generic grade B Gene Simmons hokum. Um, I, I think the one thing you could say that the, the kickoff line is sort of interesting when he says, uh, I caught the tail of a hurricane and I've never, ever been the same. I think he's talking about being in KISS. You know, I think he's talking about what that feels like where you're experiencing things so fast you you can't even process them and you've got hot and cold running women at, the, at your beck and call. And, you know, that is kind of interesting. The rest of the song is pretty generic and cliched and regurgitated lines or, you know, to be charitable, you could call them self-referential, I guess. I mean. Yeah, this, this was another one that got played the opening night of the tour and got dropped. It is, I'm glad you said that first, David, because I also agree that this is a terrible song. I'm always afraid of saying that a song is really bad because I'm afraid I'll offend everybody else, but I really could not end this song at all. The one thing I'll say in the defense, the demo of it is a little bit faster, has a little bit more energy, you know, not saying that it makes it a great song, but it's one of those songs that I think lost something in the studio. 
Yeah, they've got, it's co-written by somebody named Howard Rice. Who is that? Apparently he, um, at the time, Gene was, uh, yeah, Gene was seeing uh, Diana Ross and apparently across the street, uh, Howard Rice lived and he was uh, an engineer and, and a writer. And apparently he had some chord changes and Gene decided, you know, those chord changes were cool and he decided to write a song, you know, along the, those chord changes. So, which interestingly enough, are very, you know, classic Kiss riffs because you think of like, and that's classic. That's classic. Lick it up. You know, you can name a million Kiss songs use those riffs. So, no wonder he wanted to write a song around those chord changes. But is it Gene's you know, strongest song? Is there written? Probably not. One of the things that you know puts you know the classic Kiss stamp on this song is, you know, the riff starts, but then the drums come in, and it's always it's almost like the Christine Sixteen thing, where it's like, where is the beat? Where's the one? You know, that to me is always fascinating mm -hmm. me. And this is one. The Kiss are one of those bands that have always done that. And no other band really does that. I mean, I'd be, you know, I challenge you guys to tell me one other band that, you know, does something similar, you know, in terms of the rock vein that will write songs there with that kind of thing where it catches you, you know, wondering where the one is, you know, with, with the count of the song. The only example I can think of is Aerosmith's Sweet Emotion, where oh. Joey Kramer started playing the one halfway through the riff yeah. and it changed the way they, they played the song. But that was just kind of a happy accident. Yeah, yeah. But you know, to answer John's question about who Howard Rice was, you know, that's who he was, and I think it might have been just a convenient, you know, uh, Gene conveniently might have been around a situation where a guy was writing a song, and you know, it was close to where he was, and you know, he made the best of it, you know, in, in, in a short amount of time. Whether or not it's a great song, you know, debatable. You know. I, I I like that. I do like that riff that Mike played. That is the, that that's the part that I like the best. But yeah, in in general, um, it's yeah, it's it's it's. For me, not one of the uh, it's not one of the stronger tracks on the record, and it's odd that they put it this that they gave it the the the, uh, the second slot. Yeah, there's some some electronic drums there yeah. um, on oh, other right. tracks yeah, too, yeah. but they during the breakdown they kind of sound dated by today's standards, but at the time were kind of a novelty. Yeah, it's like the Footloose drums, you know. Yeah. Right. Boop, 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 boop. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. they were still all the rage at the time. Yeah. The the bluesy ending is kind of nice. I mean, that's a nice little you know turn, if you will. Yeah. Right. Say this too, in terms of you know, this is Bruce Kulick's first real record with a band. I mean, nowhere on this record is Bruce's playing in question. I mean, he's always playing for the song. You know, compare this to Animalize, where there's a lot of really super speedy shredding guitar playing going on, and how you decipher that. Whereas Bruce always seemed to be he could he could play that way he could shred he could play blues but he never went too far out where you were questioning what was going on you know he it was a very tasty guitar player yeah and even though he's playing a lot of super over the top pyrotechnical guitar it's always feels very melodic at the same time he, he, the, you know he, he knew the role is to serve the song and and you know be a member of the band that's the part that Vinnie Vincent would sometimes forget. Yeah, and I think also too, one of the things that you know Bruce was asked when he joined the band, you know, I think Paul had said, "Do you have a guitar with a Floyd Rose tremolo?" And Bruce had apparently just purchased one, you know, so he was ready to go. He, you know, <laughs> he had the the, you know, the tools to be in the band in this era, and he made the best of it. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, if you compare you know Bruce to other guitar players in the band, I think between Ace and Bruce, I think those two guys really just fit with the band more so than anybody else. Uh, you know, that was with them, you know, over their career. They, they became members, they played with the band and they became part of it. And, you know, I think that's admirable on, on Bruce's part. All right. Who wants to be lonely? Nobody. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> Not even a little bit. I well, I mean, on the side note, I think of people who are living alone during this pandemic, and I go, that must be crazy. I have uh, the, uh, the whatever the, in my school, the teachers that actually go into the building are the ones that are living alone. You know what I mean? Mm. Whereas the rest of us all stay home um, or whatever. So I was I, I I sometimes feel for them. All right, that was my little aside there, but. I actually like I, I actually as far as the uh, being one of the so-called radio tracks on the record, I actually like this song better than Tears Are Falling. And mm. uh, although Tears Are Falling was the only there were they shot three videos for this record. It was uh, Who Wants to Be Lonely, Tears Are Falling and uh, All Night. They shot them. Um, they, I don't think they actually put out the other two, but they, they certainly had this one like marked as being one of the singles. And I'm kind of surprised that they never really ran with it. Cause I actually, um, I think of, of the, the radio songs on the record are the songs that were very clearly written for that. And when you have co-writes with, with Desmond Child and John Beauvoir, you're trying for that. Um, so I, I, I think this is a, just a really, really good successful like power pop song. Um, and I mean that in the best possible way. That chorus rips, man. Yeah. That build up the core. I'm just like, yeah. I mean, this is. That's funny. You taught. You were talking about your workout playlist earlier. This is definitely. I just. I added it to uh, my big playlist or whatever. And it's. There's nothing super crazy amazing about the song, but it's just perfectly done. You know what I mean? Like that vamp up to the chorus, and then the way that you know Paul starts singing, you're just like, you just feel chills. You know, even though. I mean, come on, who wants to be lonely is one of the biggest cliches in rock and roll. But at the same time, it's like, this is this is great. I love this, you know. Yeah, I mean, lyrically, it's sort of the romanticized take on, you know, she's not Mrs. Right necessarily, but she's Mrs. Right now. And, um, you know, I, I think musically, Paul is letting his roots show a little bit more on this album, particularly when it comes to Led Zeppelin. So there's a bit of a nod mm -hmm. musically to the immigrant song for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a well-made song. Again, not not anything that's going to blow my socks off, you know, in terms lyrically or whatever. But I just I really like it. It's it's a favorite Kiss song that I didn't realize actually existed or I forgot about. You know. Also interesting, the line: "Some things can stand alone. A mountain can feel no desire, but a heart isn't made out of stone." You know, that's definitely getting back into the existentialist philosopher Paul that rears its head every every album here and there. Yeah, yeah. This is, um, but yeah, this is um, this is definitely one of the highlights of the record here. But they never played it live. No, really. No, yeah, really? which is yeah. odd because it was a single. They put out the video. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Weird. hmm. And apparently, it was uh, an, again another Desmond Child, you know, co-writer, like we said. And uh, Jean Bavard also was a co-writer. But apparently, Jean Bavard played bass on this track. But you know, it's it. You know, th think about the, the two. It's weird because. Desmond Child sort of you know falls in the band and he falls out and he falls in and falls back out. Like you know, it's. I mean, friendships are friendships and songwriting partnerships are, are what they are, but like, it's interesting to know, it'd be, it would be interesting to know like how that worked out. Like, do they all of a sudden decide, this is what we're gonna do with this record, this is our approach. Who are we gonna bring into this? Who's gonna be involved? Or was it just a random thing where they just happened to work with certain people like in the last song, Anyway You Slice It, with you know Gene and Howard Rice, or was it something where Paul said, for this album, I want these guys. You know, I, I, those are like you know, the in-between, the glue that's holding the thing together. We'll, we'll probably never know. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, Desmond Child was a definite regular presence in their camp, and 
I think he, um, you know, he'd been, he'd been around for several records at this point, but I think, and he, he was honing his songwriting craft because I think after this record finished, I don't know if he went straight to it, but this kind of up and coming band called Bon Jovi grabbed him and um, he was part of Slippery When Wet and we all know what happened there. And so that was when um, Desmond Child became capital D and capital C at that point. I mean, he was already a well-known person within music industry circles by the time this was happening. Mm-hmm. But um, Desmond, like uh, Slippery When Wet made sure that Desmond Child was never gonna have a problem paying his cable bill ever again. Good point. And, and, and the reason I bring that up too, though, guys, is, you know, from what I've read, apparently, you know, Paul and John Bavar had written most everything in the song with the exception of some of the lyrics in the chorus. Mm. So, you know, at what point do you bring somebody else in to say, this is what we, you know, what we need, you know, what, maybe not, they're not all at the table at the beginning when they're writing the song, but they sort of bring them in tangentially, like, okay, this is what we need and bring in that expertise, you know, I, I, you just don't know, you know, it's much like, let's say, Dave, you and I were writing a song, we would say, I've got an idea. What do you think about that? And you work it out. But when you got other layers, like other people that are go-to songwriters, you know, when do you bring that in and when do you filter that out or when do you not need that? It's, it's an interesting point of view. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, well, this, I mean, they, they wrote this whole record in a couple of months, so it had to have happened quickly. Had to have been, I think yeah. they probably had, it probably was at the point where they had this demo phase and then you bring in your Desmond Child saying, okay, what, what change can he add a change or a line or a chorus or a key change that can turn this from like a solid album track to a hit and i think that's what desmond child specialty was and so um it sounds like he may have he may have just added some very like he may have done whatever he added may have been technically like the small part that was like the tipping point in making it catchy might have been um it might have been as you know either you know a key change or something minor but something that ended up having a massive effect and so I, I don't know what his exact contribution was, but chances are that's probably that if Paul and John had written almost all of this and then Desmond came in at the end, he must have made the right suggestion that, that sealed it. You know, and this also brings up another point. I mean, looking at the record, you know, Desmond is involved in a lot of these songs, but it's primarily Paul Stanley's songs. Were there songs that were ever co-written between uh, Gene Simmons and Desmond Child? I don't think so, right? Not that I know of. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, um, no, I don't think we'll have, we'll have to look, but I think we're probably, yeah, we'll look at, I, yeah, yeah, I, so. debatable. Yeah. So next we have a Gene song with a very generic drum intro that almost sounds like a demo, uh, drum machine, but it's, uh, I think it actually narrowly misses being a great song, uh, trial by fire. Okay, this is my album. Like, um, this is actually one of my favorite Gene Simmons deep cuts. This is, um, it's so, it's, it's, it's a wonderfully simple, straightforward, uh, you know, music bed. But I think this, I, I'm almost wondering why didn't they make this the second song on the record and switch the order with any way you slice it? Um, I think this could have, um, this actually, like all of the, 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 the songs that they were looking at for singles were all Paul songs. I think they could have shortlisted this one because not only that, and, and going right to what you talked about, David, with the PMRC, this is such an unusual lyric for Gene Simmons that it's like one of those like affirmational, you know, upbeat songs. And mm-hmm. so this is the sort of thing that they could have put this out as a single and it would have been a great example for Gene Simmons to say, look, look, look at me. I can write positive songs too, because, you know, the PMRC is looking for troglodytes right now. And um, Gene would have been a perfect target. And this would have been a wonderful counterpoint to counter that. 
you know, to answer that saying, look, I can write a song that actually is something very, very positive and uplifting. And I think it's catchy. Um, I mean, it's, it's, um, yeah. is it a five, four, one progression, Mike? I don't know my keys or my, my notes. Yeah. It's, it's a very ACDC type uh, chord progression, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's not unlike stuff that was on ACDC fly on the wall, you know, which came out around the same time. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I just think it's so effective and so simple and I just don't understand why. Uh, and it's also another, this is the first Gene and Bruce co-write as well. So um, I just think this is, this is another one that this just, I, I think this for me is the song on the record that just got overlooked by everybody um, in the grand scheme of things. I think lyrically it had the potential to be a great song if they had just taken a little bit more time and put a little more thought into it and made it a little less cliche. I mean, the idea of the song, you know, um, sort of being, as Joseph Campbell says, all life is pain, but what makes mankind noble is that knowing this, he chooses to participate in it anyways. And the lines that always stick in my mind is, uh, when he says, tell me everything, they say, tell me everything. They say, let me hear you sing. I say, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to live my life the way I want to, you know, as if to say, I owe you nothing, not even an explanation. Wow. You guys have said everything I wanted to say. Yeah, which is a great lyric. And, and it does the song, you know, sell that maybe not so much. But, you know, if you take the time to delve in and read the lyrics, they are, they're good. They're great, you know. Yeah, I love when Bruce's, the, the additional guitar part in the chorus comes in and it becomes like a call and response thing. I assume that's Bruce playing that part. I, I, I would say so, yeah. Yeah. You know, interesting point too about the lyrics. When you look at the, uh, the liner notes and the lyric sheets, um, on all but one song that, that was written by Gene Simmons on this record, every time, like Anyway Sliced It, by Fire, da-da-da, they capitalize the first line of the chorus is in all caps for some reason. Interesting. It's a good song. I like it, but it's uh, could have been better. But I wish Gene wrote more like this rather than sort of phoning it in like he had before. You know, one thing we haven't mentioned um, too too much is the fact that you know uh, the vocal you know capabilities of Gene and Paul in this record are still you know far above you know what you know a lot of other bands are doing at the time I and mean, they're singing great on this record paul especially but also gene like he's not phoning in his vocal takes for this track he's putting no. in everything he's got into it. It, it, it that comes across you know so say what you will about you know the song itself it might not be your favorite for me as a kid and you know when this record came out I, as soon as i heard the track i thought that's a cool song uh, you know i can play that you know i, I want to know what that's about um you know and i enjoyed it i agree but you know it, you know, it should have been earlier on the album. I agree, Andrew, it, it was a stronger track and should have been earlier on, on the record for sure, in my opinion. So yeah, thumbs up, thumbs up to Trial by Fire. All right. So, well, it's sort of a, it was, it's a secret surprise. You know what I mean? Because I was like, oh, another, I mean, I'm get, I hate to say this, but I'm getting to the point where it's like, oh, another Gene song. You know what I mean? Or I'll just read the title and I'm like, really? Anyway, you slice it? Come on, man. You know, and this is, this was a nice surprise. I totally forgot that I really liked this song, you know, back in, what? 84 so 14 or 15 years old 85 yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, okay yeah 14 15 yeah so then we come to i'm alive paul stanley's second attempt to rewrite live wire by motley Crue. the first one being <laughs> under the gun on the last album and this one also i think owes more than a bit to uh van halen 
uh, with the vocal transition doing the whoa thing with very David Lee Roth. Um, yeah. And also, if this album has a musical motif, we talked about how Kiss was doing the dun -dun, dun -dun, that was, you know, from Led Zeppelin. Um, the, uh, I don't know how you would describe this one, but the four chord to the one chord uh, power chords, the dun, 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 dun. Yeah. That mute motif is all over this album and, and shows its head in this song as well. It, it's a barber and a riff, man. You know, I mean, you know, it's not, you know, speed metal or where, you know, whatever your you know, category of, you know, music is that is super fast, but this is a hell of a riff to, you know, to play in, in a band situation, you know, and the fact that, you know, they, they put this across on the album is impressive, you know, to me in a way, because, you know, it's almost like it goes by so fast that you can't even keep track of what's going on. Like you've got to really pay attention to lyrics and, and pay attention musically. It, it, it's a barn burning riff and it, it's, a, it's a high energy song. And, you know, it's one of my favorites on the record. Okay. But I, I like it too, but again, it is very, it is live wire right down to the, even where he's saying I'm alive in the chorus, you know, it's very, I couldn't get past that. It sounded so much like live wire by Motley Crue that I was like, why is he, but didn't now, did Bruce Kulik help write this? I can't. Yes. Okay. Yeah, he apparently wrote the, uh, the verse riff was uh, Bruce's contribution. Okay. Paul, right. Paul Bruce and uh, Desmond Child. Okay. Also, you know, the lyric, one pretty girl makes you feel pretty good, two's even better. Like, I think would have worked as a cheesy throwaway line had he not spent the entire previous A section of the verse setting it up, you know, take a look in the book of love, it's well understood, you know, right to the letter, all this. I mean, to build it up that much and then make that the payoff, I think is just, it just comes across as cheesy. <laughs> Yeah, no, I hear you, man. It it just it could be so much better. It's still not bad. I mean, I don't skip it listening to it, and I don't feel embarrassed to be listening to it. But it's uh, it just could be so much. Is this that got so many women got too little time? Is that the line? Yeah, that's yeah, 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 yeah. Man, I, I I remember listening to that even as a kid and being like, I do not have too many women, and I have plenty. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it's the teenage male power fantasy. Right, yeah. Well, even my power fantasy didn't go that far, but yeah. <laughs> well, you know, guys, think about this. I mean, here we, you know, compare that to songs like uh, Paul would say, I would never write a song like such and such song from Rock and Roll Over or Love Gun, you know, this, you know, in, in this day and age, whether it be, you know, 10 years ago or today. You know, here, you compare this to albums, you know, from the late 70s where, you know, they were writing songs like this back then. And then you go through the period with, you know, Unmasked and The Elder. And maybe this is sort of like a throwback to, I want to write a song like I used to write. And maybe mm. that's a good thing, you know? And thank goodness for that in a lot of ways, to me, in, in my opinion, anyways, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that uh, definitely that's true of, of some of the tracks that we'll get to here in terms of writing tracks like they used to. Um, mm. You know, I can appreciate the energy of the song just on a pure level you know um i just i just think that it's it's not all it could be <laughs> yeah this is one where i i like I, I like the concept and the execution but this is one that i've never fully connected with the way that i connected with say you know um with, with say out of the cold or you know or or you know jumping to another you know to, to motley Crue to live wire um i get what they were going for with it but it's one that just um I don't know. I just th this one this this one never stuck with me as much as a, a lot of other songs did. 
you know, it just shows that they're capable of, you know, holding on to their roots, but also living in the moment and, and being competitive with fans that were out at the same time. All right, so we flip the record over and we come up with Love's a Deadly Weapon, which is a title that Gene kind of took from a Paul Stanley demo that was called Deadly Weapons from the Unmasked era and uh, somewhat playing upon the whole uh, sex equals death idea uh, of film noir metal that they touched on on Animal Eyes and Murder in High Heels While the City Sleeps, Love's a Deadly Weapon and Murder's on My Mind, um, you know, calls to mind the Motorhead lyric, the answer to life's mystery is simple and direct, sex and death. Um, <laughs> again, you know, pretty cliche. I mean, the thing that st stands out to me is Gene hits that really high note at the end, and then the guitar, uh, the guitar echoes it, which I think is is memorable. But what do you guys think? Well, for me, I think like um, I think there's a, there's an interesting tell um, when you're looking at the songwriting credits for this one because you've got Paul and Gene. Um, it's rare that you have those two on the that are co-writing on the same song, but there's two other co-writers here: Rod Swenson and Wes Beach, who are two of the four members of the Plasmatics. And so, oh, is that that is, okay. yeah. And so now the plasmatics for somebody who may not be long enough in the tooth to remember this was one of the first, you know, one of the great shock rock bands of all time mm -hmm. and had one of the great front people in all of rock and roll in the late great Wendy O. Williams. Um, and she and Jean were starting to collaborate on her, on her WOW, on her solo record. But she was, is, and will always be an absolute effing legend. And so the idea of bringing a couple of guys from the plasmatics in to do something kind of like to create a real pop on a Kiss record from a conceptual idea, from a conceptualist standpoint, I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, I just wish that I had, kind of enjoyed the song more yeah it's it's a very uh, it's a very forgettable song when i was when i did my listening to it um you know while i was listening to the album i, I listened to it about four the whole album about four times and every single time that song came on i was like what is this you know what i mean it was a very it's a very forgettable song i hate to i hate to say that but it just and looking at the writing credits, there's like four or five different people on that song. So you would think somebody would have had something kind of wacky or clever to add, but it doesn't, it just doesn't, nothing speaks to me at all in the whole song at all. You know, I just, it's just noise, you know. I think, you know, if you listen to the demos, you know, that were done, you know, a few years previous with Loves the Deadly Weapon, at least it has a little more energy you know, than, you know, that those early demos had. Uh, but at the same time, too, it's a, it's a, a drum boogie that, you know, Van Halen had already done. Uh, Cactus had done this, you know, 10 years previous. You know, it's nothing new, but it, it's something that works. And it, it fit with, you know, the era and, you know, and it is what it is. But, you know, uh, you know. but you know, I agree with Andrew. It's like, it's cool to know that these guys have these resources to bring in people to, to write songs. And they're not afraid to do that. You know, some people are territorial when it comes to writing songs. And apparently, you know, in the Kiss Camp, you don't need to be territorial. So you're good for them for embracing that. 
Yeah, and mm-hmm. it was just, but I think it was, but I think it was also, I thought this was a strange song to kick off side two. Um, just, it was, I'm, I'm, I'm a little surprised they didn't lead with the single, with Tears Are Falling. Mm. Well, maybe that's, maybe that was intentional. Maybe you want to, you know, <clears throat> start the album off in a way and then, okay, ease into it and say, okay, here's you know, really where side two starts, maybe. You know, yeah. So, I don't know. so speaking of tears are falling this is the first single on the album this is the song that has been played fairly consistently live especially in recent years certainly more than any other song on this album and um kind of not necessarily an unusual subject matter but um an unusual re- reciprocity between the music and the subject matter for kiss if they were going to do a song about Paul's heart being broken, it would typically be a ballad. And this song, mm-hmm. you know, I think has sort of a detachment be- between the melody and the meaning of the lyrics. Paul doesn't seem heartbroken. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he there's a certain distance there. And the fact that he's making windshield wipers uh, <laughs> with his fingers. <laughs> oh, I know. What the hell the was video. that? Yeah. Kind of. Was another thing my wife was like, what is that? I was like, I, I don't know. I guess he's wiping tears away, you know, but yeah. It's a song that I think works better live um, than, than even on the recording. Sounds a lot heavier, a lot cooler live. Um, the melody of it, uh, oh no, is very similar to the melody that Sammy Hagar would use in uh, Pound Cake by Van Halen in a little bit after the song sure. came out yeah. same interval same cadence um mm-hmm. you know yeah I, I, I do love the vocal melody on the song during the verse um just just so i mean it's it's just again like it, something doesn't have to be super complex to be completely effective and i think this is uh um you know it's it's just this just works well on such a straightforward kiss level like you know obviously this is this is you know it is a signature song of mid-80s era kiss because it does it does all the normal paul stanley things and it does them so just very straight in, in a very straightforward and effective way also bruce's best solo on the album very catchy very memorable yeah the harmony solo is, is fantastic yeah it's great uh and also to your point, you know, two Dave, with you know, the lyrics, you know, it's not like he's saying, oh, sorry, tears are falling. He's like, oh, no. Yes. Tears are falling. You know, <laughs> is, he, is he heartbroken? Probably not. It's almost sarcastic in a way that, that Kiss songs are not usually. Yeah, true. Yeah, I, I take it as a song that he's like comforting the person. I mean, maybe I'm like, I never really bothered to listen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about well, that. Well, no, one. but I'm saying not comforting, like almost mm. like, oh, geez, now you're crying. Yeah, Why are you crying right. now? You know what I mean? Like, that's, uh, sorry, comforting is the wrong word. Um, but he's like talking about the other person. But also too, from a, a guitar standpoint, I mean, obviously whammy bars were, you know, in vogue or in fashion at the time. This is, to me, rhythmically a creative use of the whammy bar. Because you have that... as like a rhythm figure, you know, which I don't really, you know, people do that more so on guitar solos, but not on like a rhythm figure, probably not so much, you know? Hmm. Yeah, I I, I, actually, I like the riff. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the song. Like you were saying, Andrew, the whole, Paul brings a great performance to it. It's a good song all around. It has great, um, like I said, it's the Kiss machine. It's, you know, they, um, they know how to push your buttons now and they know exactly, particularly in their, you know, their, radio-friendly love ballad, they know exactly what they have to go for to get you to like the song, and it works. 
You know, and, 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 and great point, John. I also think this is interesting too, because you know, here it's, this is a song that you know the previous song on the record was "Loves a Deadly Weapon," which had been reworked, you know, over the years, different riffs from Gene and Paul and da da da. And I read um, an interview with Paul where he was saying that he was influenced by uh, the Arrhythmics. Uh, I believe they had a track called uh, "Would I Lie to You," which I think came out in '84, '85. So the cool thing is, you can be an established artist and still be current and fresh with new songs and new artists that are coming out and be inspired by that. And then you write a song that doesn't necessarily sound like the Arrhythmics, but is still of the era, you know, and becomes a strong track. I mean, this was probably number one on dial MTV for, you know, weeks, if not months at the time. And it, it is, it does sound very eighties. That's interesting that you say that. Yeah, definitely sounds very eighties. Um, yeah, no, I, I got nothing wrong with it. I mean, it's what's the, um, yeah. It, but it's almost like someone was like, you got to write Heavens on Fire again. Okay, I'll write this. You know what I mean? Like, it's sort of, um, you know, you got to write a poppy love song, you know, and, and that's, you know, they know exactly how to plug it in and create it. So, And good for them for know, knowing how to do that, because, you know, how many times do you have, you know, bands been asked to do on their sophomore record, you know, okay, replicate what we did in the first record that was a huge success and, mm -hmm. they, and they can't and they can't do it. You know, these guys consistently say right. well, they know exactly what works now. They, you yeah. know what I mean? They've seen what happens and they know how to make it work. I mean, the, the, the phrase music business is two words and not one. And um, these guys knew how to do business and they knew how to do music. And this is a great example of them actually mixing the chocolate with the peanut butter very well and getting a Reese's cup out of it. So moving on to the Gene song, Secretly Cruel which is about Gene having a willing sexual partner that he nonetheless senses a hidden, uh, shall we say, contempt or loathing underneath uh, her sexual willingness. And uh, I would actually argue that this song uh, is, had it been played and produced slightly differently, could have been B material for rock and roll over. And I, I think the best, uh, the best way to prove this argument is that there is a band, a Kiss cover band called Double Vir Virgo uh, that re-recorded this song and played it in the style of 70s Kiss with 70s Kiss production. And it sounds just as cool as like Love Em or Leave Em or see you in your dreams. You can find it on YouTube. Um, it's it's a funny song. Uh, the lines: "It was a hot day. She wore lingerie and nothing else in between." You understand what he's getting at from the perspective of how a male feels towards a woman sexually, but what else would she wear in between her lingerie and her skin? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, nothing really, right? So. Well, yeah. it could be on the East Coast. It could be cold, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, there's nothing good about the line. <laughs> it's not very good. You know what I mean? There's, cause I, that's actually what's funny is in that song, that's one of the big standout lines. You know what I mean? That's one of the, everything else. I can't remember a single lyric from that song, but I can remember that, you know what I mean? In the chorus. Um, well, something about snakeskin boots or something, right? High, high snakeskin boots. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's all like that. fairly okay, so forgettable. Yeah. Long hair. Yeah. But again, it's, you know, he's talking about hot chicks, and you're like, all right, hot chicks. But 
I was going to say that you know, lyrically, I mean, how interesting is this to, you know, just general Kiss fan, you know, of, of that era? Probably not that interesting. Or how could you relate to it in a way? Um, but there's just, there were some funny lines in the song, like, and she was all over me like a cheap suit. You know, and, it, and if you're into a girl and you're going to write a song about that, you know, he says, I could tell by, you know, what she wanted by the look in her eyes. He's like, woo, by the look in her eyes. It just it doesn't seem like a sincere, you know, sentiment in a way. You know, it just doesn't come across. Yeah, I think, I feel like overall, this is for me, um, it just, I mean, the, the song, you know, it's obviously part of the record, but I kind of view Secretly Cruel and and the song that follows it, Radar for Love, is basically the two songs that are in between Tears Are Falling and Uh All Night. I mean, like, I don't, yes. like, you know, um, exactly. I mean, it's a step above their, I'm not going to call them filler tracks because I don't skip them over. You know, I listen to them, but they're like, and, and they're and, and like and they're, they're certainly not afterthoughts. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, but I think in terms of what surrounds it, the secretly cruel is like you know, um, and and it's it's one of the songs that just gets overshadowed by what's by what's around it. That's fair. <laughs> Although, if moving on to radar, lo uh, radar for love, um, I would argue that if this album has a hidden lost classic, it is this song. Really. Um, yeah, I think okay. I really like Radar for Love. Um, you I know, think it's I, three classic mm. rock songs blended into one. Well, there's definitely Black Dog as an influence, the call There's Black Dog, there's Oh Well by Fleetwood Mac, which is actually, I think, a blues song. And then there's uh, Radar Love by Golden Era. Well, yes, clearly Paul Paul was thinking about the title Radar Love and, and, and sort of put a clever twist on it with Radar for Love. Um, yeah, I mean, the things that I like about this song is a lot of the solos on, on this album are set up with kind of introductory sections, but this is the one song on the entire album where the post-solo is set up with an original instrumental section, which Kiss was not doing on like any other songs in this period. And I think it's just, it's cool that it goes to this completely unexpected, interesting place and, you know, I don't know. I like the song. I, I like it too, but I couldn't get past that it. it sounded exactly like a Led Zeppelin song. And then if you've ever, do you know that song that, oh, oh well, you know, the, it's some guy from Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, Peter, yeah, Peter Green. Yeah, Peter, yeah, Peter Green. He, he wrote that, that, that tune. Yeah, when, when I talk to God, I know he understands. He says, stick by me, you know. Oh, you that, yeah, I do know that. Yeah, yeah, um, what I think of you, you know, that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's, that is what the song sounded like to me when I heard it. Uh, and then, I mean, again, it's a good song. This is what my theme of the album that I took away from it is, is that Kiss knows how to put the elements in the blender and pick the right parts and shove it back in your face. And you're like, this is good. I'm going to take this. This does not bore me. This is all interesting. You know what I mean? Like, also, I love the I love the pre-chorus, the bass line during the pre-chorus. Gene's doing like some kind of almost like a tapping part. Yeah. You know, like as it builds up and it's ascending and he's playing a counterpoint to it. And it's really, it's just a cool, cool like bass lick thing that he's doing on that part. Yeah. 
And I think, uh, and while we're mentioning Oh Well, I have to throw this in. For anyone who really likes the song Oh Well, and I'm definitely one of them, um, you know, the Fleetwood Mac version is the one that, that is very, very well known. But there is actually, if you like this song, go on to Spotify and find the cover version by a band called The Rockets out of Detroit. They were in the late 70s. They do an absolutely roaring cover of Oh Well that is so good that I had to basically sneak in the mention. You know, Joe Jackson did a cover of Oh Well. And it's terrible if you're interested. Oh, you know, uh, is yeah. she really going out with him, Joe Jackson? You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah. Did a cover of Oh Well, and it's uh, it was not very good. It was one of those. Here's a bunch of free records from the college radio station. We'll just give it to John. <laughs> that was in there. I was like, this is, and I was like, oh, a new Joe Jackson, and it was a terrible album. It's like the worst. Uh, the Rockets version is incredible, and I, I'm sorry uh, to the Rockets guitar player. I'm sorry, I, I don't, I can't remember your name right now, but you nailed that solo, man. Very really? Well. Okay. I will. The, the guitar player in the Rockets was Jim McCarty, who had previously played with Cactus, uh, which is also uh, Tim Bogart and Comrade Peace. A great, great band. I mean, badass boogie band from the early '70s that totally kicks ass. So no wonder. Oh, Mike, this is why this is why we love you. You knew this. No, <laughs> I know. Mike, why, did, why is that in your brain? No, because that's awesome. When I heard Cactus ten years ago, I said, "Whoa! Why didn't I know about those guys? They are they were badass. I mean, just killing guitar playing, killing band." Yeah, great, great stuff. All right, so I got to listen to the claws, and now I got to listen to the rockets. Anything else, Mike? I need to check out. Ca no, cactus. Yeah, but, you know, cactus. cactus. Yeah, for sure. Well, cactus. I'll listen to cactus. I'll listen to the rockets okay. now because I want to hear this version of Oh Well, and then I'll listen to your okay, band cool. too. All right. I mean, so we have to take a week off so I can catch up. Okay. <laughs> so what are they saying at the beginning of the song before the riff kicks in? Anybody know? I have cranked that thing up in my headphones a million times. I cannot figure that out. I can't hear it. I don't understand what they're saying. Yeah. No, I did the. I tried to figure it out too, but. I got nothing. It almost sounds like somebody's burping or something, and then it sounds like, oh, what's up with you too, or something like I don't like I, I have no explanation. It's a mystery. I don't know. I wish I knew. Yeah. It's, one of, it's, it's one of the UFOs of the KISS catalog, metaphorically speaking. Yeah. <laughs> but however, uh Radar for Love leads into um like an absolute sledgehammer of an album closer. Yeah, Absolutely. that song. You can, there is you, there is nothing wrong with that song. It's I will okay. I've told you this is the first time that I got pushback for being a Kiss fan. Normally, nobody really said anything about you know if you wore a Kiss T-shirt, nobody really cared or said anything. I went to um, we had to do these term papers for um, biology class. And this is of course, pre-internet. I'm like a freshman or sophomore in high school. And I go to Carnegie library. And of course the one in Oakland, and of course there's a million other kids from, uh, Shadyside Academy. there, all cramming to write this term paper and doing the re research. And they literally, they just were like, Are you like kiss you all night Carson. You know what I mean? And it was just like, they were like totally <laughs> Just, you know, and then on the back of the tour shirt from Asylum, it says, if it's too loud, you're too old. You know what I mean? And I just put so much. Like, um, so it's because that was the first time that was like, you know, oh, wait, Kiss isn't cool to these people. You know what I mean? Like, whereas before, you know, you grew up in Highland Park, nobody gives a shit. You know what I mean? But suddenly, you know rubbing elbows with the hoi you know the hoity-toity or whatever which really wasn't even that much but it was it was funny that asylum is the first time being a kiss fan that i'm actually getting pushback for being a kiss fan 
you know, uh, the first time that I noticed that people were like, actually, like, that stuff is stupid. And I just remember thinking, uh, All Night was the freaking greatest song um, in terms of, like, just that chorus is really well written. I mean, it's clever. Yes, it's a dumb song about sex, but it's, you know, it just it totally grabbed me. Like, I just remember, like, that was, you know, one of my favorite songs. But Mike, is this another one that's just like a 5-4-1 major chord progression? Yeah, uh, similar to uh, Heavens on Fire, you know, but sort of backwards. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, basically, it's not really 5 4 one, but it's, 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 uh, it's 4 three, yeah. one. It's basically using the root notes of the minor pentatonic and going down. Um, yeah, very similar to Heavens on Fire. Also owes something to uh, Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's, yeah. It's, it's basically like three big fat chords and just very, very catchy, which is, you know, like how, uh, and that describes just hundreds and hundreds of great rock and roll songs, and this is one of them. Yeah, it is. It's a great rock and roll song, and it's it's clever. And yeah, again, I mean, but that, you know, when your buddies start, feed your up, but, you know, that's like a great, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, philosophy. It's not John Anderson expounding on the cosmic universe, but it's, it's a clever song about having, you know, releasing, you know what I mean? And, and it's, and it's not even going to like make anybody at the PMRC angry. <laughs> right. Well, you never know. Um, I mean, the chorus is a little silly, you know, in hindsight, I mean, lyrically, it's well-trodden subject matter. I mean, it's not that different than tomorrow and tonight, or I'm a legend tonight. Um, you know, uh, although it's funny, the line, uh, there's just one thing that money can't buy is almost an allusion to the Beatles can't buy me love, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, obviously they're talking about something more than sex because certainly money can buy sex. That it can. <laughs> money can buy love. Right, well, again, it's, it's, it's the classic theme in Kiss songs about, you know, the real world sucks. Now you have to have your time where you treat yourself like you're on vacation or, you know, that you're going to uh, all night or there's thrills in the night coming up or, you know what I mean? This sort of like the double life or you're going to rock and roll all night and party every day. You know, that there's the world that everybody hates. And then here's Kiss World. You know what I mean? Where you were able to escape to. And, and just... And as far as this song being an escape, I mean, it's a classic Kiss Escape song. And I'm thinking just now, I just I just realized like one of my best memories of this song was actually a fairly recent one, which is that I'm guessing that most or all of you at some point have done gone to the Kiss Monster Mini Golf in Las oh, yeah. Vegas. Yes. Um, remember, there was the first one that was across the street from the Hard Rock Hotel. And then after three or four years, they moved it to where it is now in the Rio Hotel. And two or three years ago, I was actually staying at Rio for a convention for work. And it was, um, it was like a Monday, it was like Monday or Tuesday. And it was early in the week. I was up in my hotel room. It was like 11 at night uh, or close to midnight. And I could not like wind down to go to sleep. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go downstairs and go play a round of golf, um, you know, because I need to do something just to like unwind uh, so um so i went down there and you know at like you know between 11 and midnight on this on this uh um on like a relatively quiet week in vegas in the middle of the week i was the only person uh in kiss mini golf and so the dj came and it was like happened to be walking back to the booth and he was like hey you got the place to yourself right now do you actually have any requests and i said yeah could you uh, and just off the top of my head i was like could you just play the whole asylum record and he's like 
Sure. <laughs> so I got to play an entire round of golf in mini in, in Kiss Mini Golf by myself with Asylum playing the whole time. And I got a shout out during the record flip. It was a really fun memory, but I, I managed to finish That's up awesome. the round right around the, right around the time I was trying to shoot the ball into Gene's tongue and get the free game. But <laughs> I think um, and I think that just overall, this record has always been an upbeat party fun record for me. And just decades after it came out, being able to like get away with that um is just it's it's a great way to just sort of sum up like what that song like th th this song has always gotten that kind of a response and i would have never thought that playing miniature golf indoors at midnight on a tuesday night in vegas would be a really 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 great memory that i really hold on to tightly but there you go that's what kiss does that sounds awesome dude and for sure, this song is, you know, of the, you know, type of song that they would write, like a, a shout out loud, like a song that could easily be sold to an audience. You know, they would buy in straight away, whether or not, you know, you know, the lyrics, when you hear that riff and you hear, you know, the, the, that, that vocal chorus, you would want to join in on that, whether or not you, you knew the song or not. And I think, you know, to me, this is like a classic, you know, 70s Kiss song on, on an 80s Kiss record. It's, 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 you know, his vocal take is badass. Uh, but also to what you guys had mentioned Zeppelin, if you think about it, compare this to Misty Mountain Hop, you got... Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh, no. Right? You just ruined it for no, me. Come no. on. <laughs> no, but here's, here's the thing. You know, Robert Plant vamps over that descending chord structure on Misty Mountain Hop. He doesn't really sing a melody over it, whereas Paul makes full use of the melody of the chords and sort of matches the melody yep. of the chords. So that, that's the difference in a way, you know? Again, you know, maybe whether it was intentional or not, if it was intentional, so be it. But if it was by design, he did try to do something different to make it not sound like Misty Mountain Hop. You know, and I'm not I'm yeah. not going to speak for Paul and his songwriting approach. However, it's a great riff, but you know, you don't normally, you know, it, you know, if you're, I think Gene has even said like, if you're going to steal, steal from the best, you know, and maybe they've done that in this case. And who better steal from than Zeppelin? You know, I mean, you know, Zeppelin Beatles, you know, they, they, they've written all the songs, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. And definitely this album overall has a lot of allusions to Zeppelin. Yeah. Perhaps more so than any other Kiss yeah. album. Yeah. It, it, and again, you know, back to my original point at the beginning of our discussion, I mean, again, it sounds like a band. You know, the sound, it doesn't sound like, you know, session players coming in and, and you know, doing guitar solos and even though they Side, you know songwriters it sounds like kiss and it's 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 a wholesome album but it, it doesn't go beyond you know what you need i mean there's only 10 songs on the record you know it's easy you know in later albums i think they might have put out you know 13 14 songs on an album and it becomes you know debatable how many songs you need to put on a record it's it's even five songs each side you know you've got maybe some songs that aren't as strong as others but it stands as to me as an album that you know it's cohesive. It sounds like a band, and that's that's what you want to have when you put the you know the vinyl you know on the table and you play it. You know you don't want to be, you know, thinking you're listening to a bunch of session guys playing together and just trying to put you know chord change together and write some lyrics and, and make it sound convincing. Yeah, it hangs it hangs together as a record, and I think it says something that um, you know even though there are, there are for me there are absolute standout tracks on the record. I don't skip over the other ones to get to them. I still listen to this record in sequence. Yeah, and it, it doesn't, you don't have to like, feel like you're wasting time like getting to the next track. I mean, you know, it's, it's yeah, it, it's yeah. it's comprehensive, but it's cohesive. You know, it, it stands as a whole, as an album from beginning to end. Yeah. And too, if, if you're willing enough and daring enough, you could send uh, to Kiss Mail and Winterland Productions, 
uh, you can send photos and and don't be shy, according to the liner notes here. So. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's in the liner notes. <laughs> yeah. So you know, <clears throat> oh, I forgot man, about that. I didn't. I didn't oh, do that. God. You know. No. <laughs> no. But, no. But, but I will say. I will say. Where there's a picture of Mike floating around. <laughs> Earlier on, about you know friends from you know, our old neighborhoods. Um, one of the friends had the idea of let's call uh, ICM in New York and see if we can get some backstage passage for this show. So I remember calling from my mom's house, and we got through to them, and they were almost about to give us backstage passes, and we were supposed to you know, be able to do an interview with the band. And I don't know, they just saw through us, or you know, they didn't come through. But you know, I remember we. We looked up the number, we called the number, and it, it almost happened we, where we could have had backstage passes to the, you know, to the show, which was the last show of the Asylum Tour, which is a whole other story. Well, we'll we, yes. this is probably the time to get into that story. Okay. Right. Actually, yeah, there's um, the Asylum Tour, actually, Pittsburgh ends up being one of the really unique musical footnotes in the KISS touring history. They end up being the last night of the tour, but on the way to getting to that, wanted to interject with two very quick detours. One was that <clears throat> kind of a bit of a sad one, which was that um, earlier after they, uh, the Kiss finished an earlier leg of the tour in late January and had a week off. And during that week off, a very, very, very tragic thing happened, which was the, uh, the, the Challenger space shuttle blew up on uh, January 28th, 1986. And it was just such, it, I mean, that was when we were all teenagers, that was our, where were you when JFK was shot moment? Um, and it, I mean, I, I mean, I was at school. I mean, I, um, I mean, we all. What was were, the I guess, date again? January twenty eighth, nineteen eighty six. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. This was a snow day for us. For me, it was. Does anybody agree with that? I mean, I, I was at Central Catholic for you, that right, year, and it was not a snow day for us. What school did you go to? I was at Central that year, Central Catholic. Okay, but Mike, you were Woody High, right? Yeah, I remember. I remember watching it as it happened. Yeah, I remember watching it as it happened, and I I was a huge. Yeah, exactly. I remember watching it as it happened too. I remember we were home from school. Sorry, oh, wow. go on. My bad. Okay, but anyway, it was um, uh, four days later. The Kiss tour resumed in Tucson, and um, Kiss did a very unusual thing. I mean, they would they would occasionally make dedications to people, but in this case, Paul actually dedicated the entire show to the crew of the Challenger. Um, mm. and, and, and just to remember how absolutely devastating that was because this all happened live on TV where, and you know, they set up auditoriums so kids could watch it live in school. There was a teacher, it was the first time a civilian had gone up. And they also, I mean, NASA also learned like, like a really bad lesson from this is that now, like when you go down to Kennedy and Houston Space Center, there's an observation deck where the families of the crew members sit and they actually now it's on like a slanted balcony. And now if something happens, um, they actually have like a, sh a shade that comes down in just a couple of seconds to basically like shield everybody. And then there's a wall, a big wall behind the family area that immediately opens up where there's just a wall of like grief counselors and first aid people in the event that you get a repeat of something like this. Mm. Because you remember like, not only did this happen in front of everybody, but they were actually had cameras on the family members of the crew when it happened. And it was, this was, it's hard to overstate how devastating this was. And it's, it's, it, it was a really sad thing. And I think it's, it's unfortunately as much fun as this album is and as much fun as it's been walking back down this, um, this, this was a sledgehammer to the chest of everybody. And um, I thought, you know, for Kiss to actually dedicate an entire show 
you know, tell, says something about how deeply affected it was, affected that everybody was. And then in between that and the final show of the Asylum Tour, which was um, on April 12th, 1986, um, a very fun local detour happened. And at this point, we have to, um, Mike Gavigan had a band in high school called 5503, which was the police code for criminal disturbance. And he and his bandmates wrote the book on how to absolutely disrupt and destroy the high school talent show. I know you may have been in a band or some sort of act that disrupted your talent show. You didn't do it as these guys. So Mike, um, as, a, as a quick walk down memory lane, tell everybody what 5503 did because it is KISS related and it is effing hilarious. We saw an opportunity to play a talent show um, and everybody was given a five minute um, allotment of time to, to do whatever they needed to do. You know, that included uh, R&B, rap, uh, you know, rock, uh, you know, dances. Yeah, what, whatever you wanted to do. Um, so I saw that as an opportunity to utilize my band, which was 5503, which is Joe Mealy, Frank and AC and myself. And uh, we basically turned it into a rock and roll party, which is the way we built it. And we played... Uh, Lick It Up, uh, I believe, um, Cold Gin, and we also did a, a guitar solo and a drum solo. So we, we easily went over the five-minute allotment, which is probably the better part of 15, 20 minutes. Um, <clears throat> that didn't go over so well, to the point where uh, some people went outside and decided to grab belongings and throw rocks at the band. And I Well, let's remind people maybe what you guys were a little louder than everybody else well remember how that happened? yeah everybody else what everybody else in the bill was using the in-house pa system in the uh, the high school auditorium we basically rented out the largest pa system you could rent from swiss Hill music store uh you know as our back line so we were out to kill and you know that didn't uh, stop the rocks from flying i, I thought this was a piece of duct tape it was a rock and hit me in the back and i kept it to this day uh, there it is <laughs> but you know what um <laughs> I, it's funny. It was, it, it was a Palestinian inspirational moment because you know people were complaining and throwing rocks and stuff. And I basically went to the microphone and said, "Listen, we're here to play this show for the people that are judging this show. If you don't want to be part of that, then you can turn around and get out of here." Oh. <laughs> so you know, it, it became legend. You know, the next day, apparently, you know, the the, the police came. Police came, and it got ugly. And my dad was. He came back. Mikey, Joey. If you want my advice, I would, you know, I would get my gear and I get the, you know, blank out of here. And as we went out the back door, the cops came in the front door and we got away and there it is, you know. So that was basically one of the first shows I ever did in, in public, <clears throat> for better or worse. <laughs> and you didn't even get, and, and then you guys didn't even get third place. No, no, yeah, we, you know, but, but, you know, ultimately, in my opinion, we won, you know. <laughs> yes. And also, and also, I think um, a friend of ours called up Chris DiCarlo at WDVE, the classic rock station in Pittsburgh, and got her to dedicate We're Not Gonna Take It uh, to 5503. Um, yeah. Like saying these guys just, these guys just got, um, these guys got screwed over in their talent show, and this goes out to them. So um, that was, I, I guess, better, better than third place. Right, and that was our good buddy Chuck Baker, which I had the, the program from that, sh that talent show, and I have it autographed by the band, as well as our sound man, Chuck Baker. Ah, nice. Yeah, good, good, the, good, so, the good old days, you know, rock and roll. <laughs> it, it, it stayed all of our lives, you know? Yes, and so all of that led up to um, Kiss, actually, um, while not intentionally, they ended up um, ending the Asylum Tour in Pittsburgh, 
And uh, the original show was supposed to be on April 3rd. And I yeah. found out that the show was canceled because I actually was one of the people that didn't go to that show because I was allowed only allowed to go to one show per month. And I, had to, I went to ZZ Top that month instead. But instead, it was a Thursday night. And I went to the St. Anselm's Catholic Church Teenage Youth Group that Mike would go to and several other people. And I was the only one of the hardcore KISS fans who hadn't gone down to the show that night. But when I got there, um, um, you know, Father Francis, the guy who ran it, looked at me and he goes, well, how come you're here? And I said, well, what, what, what are you talking about? It's, you know, it's Thursday night. And he said, well, you're not at the KISS concert. And I said, well, no, I'm going to see ZZ Top. And he said, you know, he's like, well, you know that it, you know the KISS show got canceled, right? And I'm like, what just happened? And he said, yeah, they, they blew out a trans, like the, the, uh, there was a transformer blowout at the Civic Arena uh, about two hours before showtime and over a thousand people had already gotten to the arena before it happened. And since I didn't get to go, um, I also didn't get to go to the reschedule. And at that point I can hand it off to the three of you that were there. So, so we were down there hanging out and we had scoped out where uh, the band was loading in and and whatnot right so we we kind of went back there and it was like this this semi underground thing um and we see the bands there jeans there they're hanging yeah, they're out hanging out hanging out and so we go we go up to we walk down into this underground area and immediately security is like ready to pounce on us and pound us uh -huh. into dirt and gene kind of gives a you know little wave of the hand like it's okay, you know, don't, don't kill them. And, you know, they sign <laughs> autographs for us and they were very cool. And then word comes down that the show is canceled. Now the band has nothing to do but hang out and sign autographs for people. And the reason being that they have this humongous KISS logo for that tour um, that I think, you know, caused them all kinds of problems with blowouts and, and stuff uh, that wasn't <laughs> properly, I don't know if it wasn't properly grounded or they didn't do the homework to figure out how to interface it properly with the power at these arenas. Dave, but yeah, Dave, was, it, according to what I read, it required its own transformer. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, so somehow they didn't have their shit together and they actually ended up canceling multiple dates because they kept blowing the power out of these places. Um, there was a news report that night about the KISS riots downtown because the fans were chanting KISS and they were down there. They had nowhere to go. It was a beautiful thing. Yeah, but to, to Andrew's point about shows at that time, and I'm looking at ticket stubs here. In January, I saw Twisted Sister. February, I saw Loverboy and the Hooters. Uh, Aerosmith, Ted Nugent in March. Uh, KISS, you know. Yeah, we went to that one together. Yeah, we, so. I mean, KISS in April. Uh, Van Halen in May. David Lee Roth in September. Judas Priest in August. I mean, Tons of shows to go to, right? Man, but you know. Yeah, De Caesar Angler normally set it up so that there was one big arena headline show per month so you could save your money. Yeah, a great time to grow up. Um, but let's let's yeah. get to you know the rescheduled KISS show. Um, originally, the, the opening band would have been King Cobra, right? Well, originally it was supposed to be King Cobra, yeah. but I think for the rescheduled date, it was supposed to be Lita Ford. And then she ended up canceling at the last second for some reason. And they substituted kicks and you can talk because you know those guys you can talk more about how that all came about yeah i know you know some of us have heard the story some of us haven't um uh i'm also in a band with jeremy white in a band called the blessings and jeremy has is long time been friends with the guys in kicks ronnie yunkins uh, and uh, brian forsyth uh, were in an early version of the blessings 
Uh, and uh, there was a time where me, Jeremy, and his girlfriend at the time, and my girlfriend, uh, had dinner with Ronnie and uh, just hung out about you know playing guitar. He taught me about the cage system with the guitar, all these ways to play chords. And I said, that's cool, but how, you know how to play these Joe Walsh licks? And it was a great night, right? Guitar, guitar heroes. I asked him about this show. And he said, basically, kicks were in Texas somewhere. I don't know if they're opening to ZZ Top or whoever it was. Uh, he said they got the call like the day before the show. They drove in their van 19 hours from Texas to you know to Pittsburgh for the show. Loaded in, did the show. They were like the best bar band, but like professional, you know, moves and you know bravado and you know front man, killer band. It was it was a killer show. Um, you know, but this is, you know mid level band, right? So Ronnie said, yeah. The, the cool thing was we did the show, but then afterwards we go outside you know to leave the show and get in our van, and the van wouldn't start. <laughs> So he said, we were going outside looking and we saw these big, you know, kiss buses and vans and trucks. And, you know, we're like, well, you know, that's impressive and all, but what are we going to do? And apparently some of the kiss crew came out and helped them jumpstart their van so they could, you know, get back on their way and get back to wherever it was they needed to be on tour. But he said it was, it was a great show. And I said, listen, you guys just killed that night and you guys came across so strongly. And uh, he said, man, that's really cool. And Ronnie is one of the nicest guys in the world. Um, you know, just a true musician and uh, just a, a sweet soul to be able to talk to. And for him, you know, to, for me to be able to re recall that story with him and to see his joy with opening that show and knowing that, you know, he, he drove it home with, you know, myself and, and, and the my friends that were at that show, I think it meant the world for him to hear that as well. So good to know that you can be at that level and still kill, uh, but know that, you know, you, you, you do what you're supposed to do and that's just, you know, leave, you know, an ounce of blood on stage and kick ass and, and, and feel good about it and be confident about it and own it. And you were far from the only person to feel that way. I mean, I was blown away. Those guys were on yeah, fire. They really it. There was no indication that they were even the least bit tired. I mean, they were so over the yeah. top, high energy, tight. Um, and to this day, one of the most entertaining live bands I've ever seen. If you catch them anywhere, if they're playing anywhere near you, I highly recommend you see these guys live. Um, and those guys, uh, maybe the best opening band I've ever seen for Kiss. Wow, I would agree. Yeah, I would agree. Actually, huh? I remember really liking them, but yeah, yeah, all right. I'm willing to buy that. Sure, they were they were a great show. I remember being totally blown away, and even buying the album almost immediately after seeing yeah. it. So we should talk about the show. It was an interesting show. It was the last show of the tour. Um, the, as I recall, they played a good chunk of the song R "Round and Round" by Rat which was an odd choice, you know, like they got halfway through the song and Paul stops and he goes, huh, I bet Rat wouldn't play one of our songs, which was, I don't know what that was. I don't know why he, they did that. I guess it was some in-joke or something. Um, they played Won't Get Fooled Again, right? The cover, yeah. the one that they now allude to and lick it up. Um, they had they had lost the stage that they started the tour with. Like if you look at the when they were playing Detroit, they had these crazy, almost like MC Escher, Dr. Seuss type ramps, like coming up from all ends of the stage that like it was. I mean, it seems like the sort of thing that Paul scrawled on a napkin and then they actually built it and they were like, wow, that looks dangerous as hell, you know, and, and <laughs> they had completely dropped those by the time uh, they came to play for us. Now, what they did do was what I argue is the greatest Paul Stanley rap of all time. And I know that they did a variation of this rap um, 
all throughout the tour there when they were playing cities that weren't on the main drag they would say you know well, why did we come here and you know blah 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 but i want to i'm going to try and share this with you guys It's it's so it's so great. I mean, it's just it's such a uh, an incredible like lifetime binding moment between band and fans, and um, you know, just one of one of the many great memories that I forever treasure as a Kiss fan. Yeah, and think about this too. I mean, on, on tours as far back as the '70s, there were lots of canceled dates that 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 you know where where they didn't go back to that city again. You know, until the next tour. So. Clearly, it did mean something to you know to them to come back to Pittsburgh. Whereas you know previous tours, you know if they had a canceled date, they never made there was never a makeup date. Yeah, fair point. Yeah, yeah. It was a great show. I'm glad that I saw it. Absolutely. All right. Any final thoughts about the Asylum album or tour? Uh, for me, just two points. It was cool to see a couple things that, that came back from the 70s. I think they did like a confetti storm and rock and roll night, which they hadn't done in years. Um, and it, it, I guess Gene Solo had like a rocket launcher on the end of his base, and which you know previously was something Ace would have done. Oh my God, he um, did. That's totally right. I totally forgot. Yeah. Um, even though you know the set list had you know probably the the, the lowest number of, of songs from the you know the nineteen seventies era you know uh, in, in their in their history, but nonetheless, and, you know the energy was there. I mean, they they put on a kick ass show. Um, it was a great album to support, and you know, I mean, thank goodness you know that we had shows like that to attend because you know it, you know we, here we were you know mid teens you know when we you know th those of us that saw Kiss in the seventies we were we were young kids you know but we were you know obviously you know a little bit more sure a little bit more aware. Um, and we got to experience that, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, at high volume, um, you know, with the band that we love. So thank goodness, you know, that they were back, you know, on, on, on the path with, you know, albums and tours. And we got to witness that, you know, in the era that we did. You're here. 
Yes, yeah, couldn't have said any better myself. So on that note, thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with Crazy Nights. <laughs>